Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Today, as I've already mentioned in the welcome, uh, is the seventh commandment. Uh, which is about not committing adultery. And as we mentioned on social media this week and in the welcome this morning, uh, that means that this teaching will likely be uh, a little more PG-13 in its content than normal, maybe more like PG-10 or PG-11. It's not going to be that racy, I promise. Uh, And and it's kind of up to you as a parent if your child is in here with you. Uh, I certainly don't mind being a helpful conversation starter for you and your child, but I also don't want to force you into a conversation you're not ready to have with them. So your call, do with that information whatever you want. Just know that we're kind of going to be going for it this morning content-wise. So we got plenty of ground to cover, as I mentioned, so I'm just going to hop straight into our text. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18. It reads as follows. Quote, you shall not commit adultery. That word adultery in the Hebrew language describes any sexual interaction between two people where at least one participant in the act is married to someone else. So it could refer to a married person cheating on their spouse or to an unmarried person being sexually involved with someone who is cheating on their spouse. The seventh commandment prohibits anything and everything resembling that situation. You shall not commit Adultery. So upon understanding that, we probably find ourselves in a pretty similar situation to last week's commandment. Last Sunday, when we read the command, you shall not murder, we noted that probably not many people take issue with that command as it's written. Same thing here. I I don't know of very many people who would say that don't commit adultery is a bad rule for us to have in place. Maybe there are people who would say it's unrealistic. Maybe there are people who would say it's sometimes a very difficult rule to follow. But still, I don't know that there are that many people in our society going, I disagree. I think adultery is a really good thing for marriages and society in general. I don't know of anybody making that case, or at least not many people. Most wedding vows that you hear if you attend a wedding ceremony contain something about promising faithfulness to your spouse. Because most people agree that adultery is a net negative for marriages and for societies. And I would also imagine that on some level, a lot of us have had our lives negatively impacted by someone's adultery. Maybe we committed adultery ourselves and and regretted it afterwards. Maybe we were cheated on by somebody else. Maybe one of our parents committed adultery against the other parent. Maybe that happened multiple times throughout our life. Maybe we have had to walk with one of our good friends or family members through the aftermath of adultery. It's been my experience, at least, that at least the vast majority of people have been in proximity to an act of adultery at at least some point in their life and have seen up close just how devastating it can be to all involved. So for multiple reasons, most of us are probably on board with the reasoning of the seventh commandment, do not commit 
adultery. The, the logic of this commandment checks out for us at an intellectual level, I think. But that said, here's my concern. All my cards on the table, I do wonder if some of us are living in ways that are more consistent with adultery than we fully realize at the moment. I I wonder if the way that we currently think about our life and other people and sex in general actually has far more in common with the reality of adultery than we think it does. And if that's true, I would say that's well worth us pressing into as followers of Jesus as a way of seeking to align our life with the heart of the seventh commandment. So that's what I want to get into this morning. And that is actually the precise point that Jesus makes when he references the seventh commandment in his own teaching in the New Testament. So we're going to look at Matthew 5, verses 27 through 29. We'll put it up on the screen. You're also welcome to turn there if you'd want. But we'll, we'll look at this for just a moment because I think this is really helpful when it comes to thinking through what the heart behind the seventh commandment is. So this is Jesus in one of his most famous teachings, often called the Sermon on the Mount, and he is commenting and expounding upon the seventh commandment itself. There he says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. There's our commandment. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So... We'll talk briefly about the part about amputation and disfigurement here in just a little bit before we're done, because I know that's a little bit intense if you've never read that passage from the Bible before. But notice what Jesus does at the beginning of the passage we just read in Matthew chapter 5. He starts with the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, and then he ups the ante on that commandment, very similar to what we read about murder and anger last week. He says, yes, for sure, do not commit adultery. I stand behind that commandment. But also, I'm telling you that if you are looking at someone in order to lust after them, you have already essentially committed adultery with that person in your heart. That's Jesus' point. So as we mentioned last week, God is always concerned with our hearts not just our actions. So so while he does deeply care that people not commit adultery, he's also not content with just that. It's actually not a win in God's eyes if we all go around objectifying each other constantly and just happen to stop short of acting out on that objectification sexually. That's not a win in his book. That's not better, at least in part, because that's not really how human nature works. We don't typically exercise that level of self-control. If we lust after someone long enough, eventually we tend to act out on it in some way, shape, or form. But also, Jesus says this because objectifying other people still demonstrates a corrupted view of other people, a less-than-biblical view 
of other human beings. It, it indicates that on some level, we have failed to see that other person as an image bearer of God, as someone worthy of dignity and respect, as a, a whole person who deserves to be treated as such. They should not have their existence truncated down to an object of our gaze or our fantasy. That robs the other person of their personhood, whether they realize it's happening or not. It takes a person with, with a story and a soul and a life of their own, and, and it boils them down to a collection of body parts that we enjoy looking at. And doing that, according to the scriptures, is a sin against them and a sin against God who made that person in their image. So practically, it would seem that we need to ask the question, what does it mean to look at another person lustfully. What is Jesus prohibiting in this passage in Matthew chapter 5? What does he mean by that phrase? What is, he, what is he putting off limits when he teaches this? The Greek word for lust means to show focused passion towards something and to allow it to build and accumulate over time. That's what the word means. So it's not, it's not simply to notice that another person is attractive. That may happen from time to time, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're lusting after that person. Lust is when you choose to take that second look, that third look, and on down the line. It's, it's when you settle into the glance at that other person such that it becomes more than a glance. Lust is when your mind runs past, oh, that person's attractive, and into, I want that person for myself. Uh, Martin Luther, the 16th century theologian, he explained the difference between noticing beauty and lusting after other people with an analogy of sorts. I found this so funny. He said, quote, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. It's a little 16th century humor for you. So that, I think, is what Jesus is warning against in Matthew chapter 5. He's warning against letting birds make a nest in your hair when it comes to lust. Against nourishing and cherishing that gaze towards someone you are not married to. Against letting an observation turn into an obsession of sorts, a, a fixed, settled desire towards someone that you are not in a marriage covenant with. That, Jesus says, is objectifying the other person and is virtually the same as committing adultery with them. It is, in essence, a violation of the seventh commandment. And just to state the obvious, opportunities to lust seem to be everywhere in our modern society and in our daily lives. Lust, for example, is when you see that person out for a run or at the gym with very few clothes on and you choose to take that second or third glance back at them. Lust is the mindset that fuels pretty much all hookup culture. It's when you're swiping through your dating app of choice and primarily asking the question, would I or would I not like to hook up with this person on the screen? It's having a friend that you hook up with periodically because dating is just too complicated and you both need a release. Uh, to state the obvious, lust is what fuels porn, which is now a billion-dollar industry in our country alone. It's when you click over to that Explore tab on Instagram and you start scrolling, pausing a little bit longer on all the posts with physically attractive people in them. 
It's when you pause long enough on the more suggestive videos on TikTok such that your For You page knows exactly the type of thing that you like and starts feeding it to you in greater, greater frequency. It's when you see that photo of that person that you went to high school or college with and you start imagining what your life would be like if you would have ended up with them. It's, it's hyper-sexualized movies and TV shows that you watch for the plot, but the plot is just wildly attractive people sleeping with each other every five minutes throughout the show. It's podcasts and audiobooks and books where the plot revolves around sex and the objectification of other people. And we could go on with examples of it for a while because they're everywhere. But lust is any time that we turn another person, someone we know or someone we don't know, someone in real life or someone on the screen into an object of our gaze, fantasy, or pleasure. That is what Jesus is warning about in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, some people might be inclined to respond to that by saying, okay, but what's really the big deal with lust? Like, is that, is that really that big of a deal? Like, sex is a natural human desire. It's not hurting the other person to lust after them. And in many cases, the other person might not even be aware that you're doing it. So, so how could that possibly be that bad of a thing? Especially to the point that Jesus warns against it as strongly as he does. What is the big deal about lust? Can it possibly be that bad? It can and I'll give you some reasons why. Here's all of the data that we have so far about lust and its impact in our society. We'll go through these pretty quickly because there's a lot in them. First, lust destroys intimacy. It destroys intimacy. So all kinds of studies are now showing that specifically, the more porn a person watches, the more crushingly unrealistic their sexual expectations are, and the less tolerance they have as a result for the imperfect realities of a real human relationship. Lust also fuels sexual violence. There are over 50 reputable studies out there that directly link porn consumption to acts of sexual assault. Lust decreases the frequency of sex that people actually have. So most every survey done in the last five to 10 years is showing that the further we get into the so-called sexual revolution, the less sex people are actually having with each other which doesn't sound like a wildly successful revolution, if you ask me. Lust also contributes to widespread body image issues. So the more our society tends to idolize men and women that meet our near impossible standards of beauty, the more the other 99.9% .9 of us struggle to see our own bodies as beautiful and desirable. Lust is having a profoundly negative impact on children. The most recent data I could find shows that children are having their first exposure to pornography when they are 10 years old. That's elementary school. Some high schools are even adopting what they call porn literacy classes because their students are entering into sexual relationships thinking that the porn that they watch depicts realistic sexual relationships, which it pretty much never does. High schools are having to teach their students not to follow the cues that they see in porn so that rates of sexual assault and violent sex acts in our schools don't skyrocket as a result. And finally, lust harms women. 
More and more, we're seeing articles in mainstream outlets and magazines and online services that claim to help women, quote, have sex like men, by which they mean have sex flippantly and meaninglessly. Here's a couple actual headlines I saw. First, how to biohack your brain to have sex without getting emotionally attached. Another one, here's what to do if you start catching feelings for the person you're sleeping with. Some of these articles actually advise women to try substances like cocaine or meth before they have sex or to focus their thoughts during sex on another person to avoid becoming attached to the person they're having sex with. Now, any professional therapist worth their salt will tell you what is being advised in those articles is something called dissociation, disconnecting your mind from your body and or surroundings. And just so we're clear, dissociation is typically a psychological response to trauma that you receive counseling to unlearn over time, not a method that you should encourage people into. So just in case you're wondering how the sexual liberation movement is going for women, there you have it. We are at the point where we are teaching women to view sex as trauma so that they can keep up with the demands of the modern sexual ethic. Lust harms women. And there are so many other things we could say along those lines. So many other ways that the normalization of lust is having a profound, negative, harmful impact on our society. A lot of it is actually becoming very well documented by researchers, Christian and secular, both in the examples I just listed out and beyond. There's actually a fascinating book that I would recommend to you. came out last year called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution by Louise Perry. And in the book, she essentially makes the case over and over again that much of what passes as a modern feminist sexual ethic is actually centered around male pleasure and doesn't actually have the best interest of women in mind at all. It's not at all a Christian book, certainly isn't for the faint of heart, given some of the studies that she cites, but I'd highly recommend it if you are skeptical at all about anything we're teaching in regards to the Christian sexual ethic. There is profound harm that ensues when we don't follow God's design for sex. So here's my point. The more the data accumulates, the more it is actually confirming what the scriptures have insisted to us all along, that when we fight against God's design for our humanity and our sexuality, harm ensues as a result. Every time, whether we realize it or not. And part of that is because as we try to say often around our church, God does not make arbitrary rules. God does not just go around identifying things that humans like doing and randomly deciding to make those things off limits. That's not how God operates. That's not what's happening. Rather, God knows how our humanity and our sexuality and our relationships and our societies, he knows how those things were designed to work. He knows because he designed them to work that way. And he gives us commands and instructions that seek to align us with that good design for sex, for our relationships. So let's talk for a bit about what that design is exactly. What what is God's design? What is God's intention for human sexuality? 
And just as importantly, I think we need to answer the question, why is that God's design for sexuality? Why does he think that that's the way sex should work? At least from where I sit as a pastor, I think the church has often been really, really good at articulating what the biblical sexual ethic is, i.e. no sex outside of marriage. I think we've often done a very good job communicating that. But much of the time, we have not been quite as good at articulating why that is the biblical sexual ethic. And listen, with every degree that our culture moves further away from agreement with the biblical sexual ethic, I think it is going to become really, really crucial that we learn how to articulate both the what of the biblical sexual ethic and the why. I think if you want to be a good missionary in our society, you have to learn to not just explain what the biblical sexual ethic is, but why that's the biblical sexual ethic, why it makes sense, and why you've chosen that ethic over all the others out there. So let's do that, at least briefly, this morning. The origins of the biblical sexual ethic can be found all the way back on the first couple pages of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, God brings the first man and the first woman together in a marriage relationship. The author of Genesis records that moment with these words from Genesis chapter 2. It says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. That phrase, one flesh, in the Hebrew is a profound concept. One scholar actually interprets it as meaning something like fused together at the deepest level of your existence. Sex, according to Genesis chapter 2, is a way of becoming fused together with another person at the deepest level. Specifically, a person of the opposite sex that you've committed your life to through marriage. Sex is a way of giving yourself to the other person in a safe context of trust and friendship and mutual shared affection for each other. So so biblically, marriage is joining your life to another person. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, financially, it's a way of saying to the other person in your marriage that you belong to them and they belong to you with nothing at all held back. That's what marriage is. And at its best, Genesis tells us that a husband and wife in that context of a marriage can be naked and still feel no shame. So so let that sink in for just a moment. God designed sex to be a shame-free experience. That, according to the Bible, is is what marriage is. It's, It's giving every part of yourself to the other person with nothing at all held back. And if that's what marriage is, well, then sex is simply acting that reality out physically with your bodies. It's becoming one with the other person, physically speaking. It's communicating with your body what is already true of the rest of your life with that person. And because that is what sex was designed to be, the Bible does teach that no sexual activity should happen outside of that marriage context. The reason being that sex outside of that context would be to say something with your body that is decidedly untrue of your life that is decidedly untrue of the rest of the relationship. Physically, you would be saying that all of me is yours with nothing at all held back, but in reality, there would actually be a good bit of yourself that you're holding back. 
from that other person. So, so the biblical view, the biblical thinking behind sex outside of a marriage context is not necessarily that it's dirty or nasty. It's that it's dishonest. It's, it's disingenuous. It, in essence, lies about the nature of the relationship. It pretends something is true of that sexual relationship that isn't actually true. And because, that God, because God insists that our bodies are a significant, meaningful part of who we are, he also insists that what we do with our bodies matters. It matters deeply. He insists that we should not do something with our bodies that is inconsistent, untrue of the rest of our lives. Which put most simply and directly means that sex should be enjoyed and frequent inside of a marriage relationship and should never be present outside of a marriage relationship. That's the biblical sexual ethic, and that's why God puts it in place. Now, unfortunately, far too often, that is not the situation, both within a marriage or outside of it. Far too often, sex within marriage for many people is difficult and frustrating and infrequent. And far too often, sex outside of marriage is presented by our culture as the most exciting, enjoyable type of sex that there is. And all of those dynamics at play and more tend to mean that people experience a great deal of shame and dysfunction around sex. So maybe, for example, you grew up in a family that communicated implicitly or explicitly that sex was dirty and shameful and not to be talked about. Maybe you spent time in a church that communicated something like that. Maybe you were in a sexual relationship with someone that ended up becoming exploitive or, or manipulative. Maybe you were part of the one in three men or what we now think is over half of women who have experienced some type of sexual assault. Maybe some of that has contributed to you feeling a great deal of shame around sex, dysfunction around sex. Maybe it's left you in a place where you don't know how to think or feel about sex, where you're intimidated by just the thought of it. Or maybe there are choices you've made around sex in your life that have left you feeling like it's honestly not that big of a deal. Maybe you feel like given the amount of sexual sin and sexual experiences you've had outside of God's design, there's not really much of a reason to not continue making those types of choices going forward. To you, maybe it feels like you're already so far down that road, it's not going to make much of a tangible difference to stop now. Or maybe the dysfunction that you experience around sex is something different than anything I've mentioned so far. The reality is that probably a lot of us in the room experience some amount of shame, some amount of dysfunction, some amount of difficulty or confusion around sex. So what I wanted to do before we're done today is to try to spend some time speaking into those types of situations for a bit. And I'd like to do that by talking for a bit about a word with, with an admittedly checkered history. I want to talk a bit about the word purity. Mention that word, purity, to the average modern person and you will most likely get an eye roll from them, if not something worse, in return. 
And I think a lot of that is because some churches have used that term in some not so helpful ways. Sometimes they've used it as a weapon to swing at people who they consider not to be pure for one reason or another. But today, if it's cool with you guys, I'd like to endeavor to do the impossible, at least in some people's minds. I would like to try and redeem the word purity because I sure do love a challenge. One of the words that we translate as pure in the New Testament is the Greek word hagnos. It means properly to be pure or chaste or unadulterated or uncontaminated. And all of that is what has led some Christians through the years to use the word pure to describe someone who has no sexual sin to speak of. Functionally, it is thought by some that if you are a virgin, if you're completely free from any present or past sexual sin, that means you are pure, biblically speaking. That means you're operating from a place of purity, at least in the minds of a lot of people. But here's what I think that definition of purity actually misses. And to be honest, it's a pretty glaring omission. It misses that none of us on our own are pure. I repeat, none of us are pure. Jesus showed us that in our Matthew 5 passage from earlier. He said, quote, but I tell you that if anyone looks at someone else lustfully, they've already committed adultery in their heart. Anyone who has done that, according to Jesus, isn't pure. 1 John chapter 1, which we quote a lot around here, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, if any of us claim to have achieved a purity status on our own, the Bible says we are lying, about ourselves. Psalm 14 says, quote, all have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Romans 3 picks it up where that leaves off and tells us that, quote, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Are you seeing a theme here? The absolute silliness about telling people that purity is achieved through never making any ill-advised sexual choices is that pretty much none of us have successfully done that. If looking at another person lustfully means that we have committed adultery in our hearts, just to call out the elephant in the room, that means the vast majority of us have committed adultery in our hearts. And even if you maintain that you're one of the few people on planet earth that have never done anything like that, first, I have some doubts about your integrity. But second, even if that's true, at best, that only makes you sexually pure. It doesn't at all make you pure. For instance, how's your heart in regards to anger and bitterness and resentment towards other people? How's your heart in regards to money and possessions and greed and materialism? How's your heart in regards to how you view other people in general? Is there any condescension, any self-righteousness, any superiority in your spirit towards anyone else? Because all of that, biblically speaking, is still impurity. Scripture tells us over and over again that none of us are pure. Even if we've managed to keep one aspect, one compartment of our life pure, which again, doubtful, but even if we have, that does not make us pure. That just makes us in need of God's grace in other arenas of our life. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, wait, 
didn't he say that this was going to be helpful in regards to how we think about sex? This does not feel very helpful so far. Understood. Here's why I think it's helpful. Here's the helpful part. It's because of the rest of that sentence from the passage I mentioned in Romans chapter 3. We'll put it up on the screen. Right after it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it says this, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The good news about none of us being pure on our own is that being pure on our own is never what God was after in us anyway. It was never about purity being something that we achieved. It was always about what Jesus would achieve on our behalf. It was always about Jesus' purity standing in the place of the impure. It was always about his holiness, his righteousness, his performance, his goodness in our place. You see, the moment that we start to believe that God came for pure people, we have radically misunderstood ourselves and radically misunderstood the gospel message of the Bible. Jesus came exclusively for the impure. Those with a spotty track record at best. He came exclusively for those who have realized that they cannot cut it on their own and they need his help. You see, what's so incredible about Jesus is that he not only gives us a path to follow in regards to our sexuality, he also gives us a clear path back when we fail. So as odd as it might sound to hear, if you walked in here feeling like you are no good at purity, you might be in the best possible place to see and savor the beauty of the gospel message because you are keenly aware, at least in that arena of your life, of your need for Jesus, your need for his intervening, transforming power. And on the other hand, If you're convinced that you are already pure on your own, you will have the hardest time fully appreciating the gospel because you don't functionally think you have much need of it in your own life. Um, One of my favorite things to watch as you read through the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Bible, is to watch how Jesus tries to get this message across most any time that he interacts with somebody who has a questionable sexual reputation. So there's one famous story where a group of religious leaders bring forward a woman who is caught in adultery. They want to have her stoned, killed for her sin. So Jesus responds to these religious leaders with their pitchforks still out. He says, tell you what, let any of you who is without sin cast the first stone. Silence. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? In that statement, he's saying, sure, she's impure because of her sin, no doubt about it. But then again, so are all of you. There's another story in the Gospel of Luke, one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible, where Jesus is having dinner at the house of a prominent religious leader named Simon. And while he's there, a a woman with a sinful reputation is all we're told. She shows up uninvited at the dinner party. In all likelihood, she's a sex worker. And while she's there, she begins to weep 
at Jesus' feet, wiping his feet with her hair and pouring perfume on them as an act of worship. And meanwhile, Simon, the religious leader, who is appalled by the fact that a so-called holy man is allowing a woman with this type of reputation anywhere near him, gets really bent out of shape about everything going on at the dinner party. And in response, Jesus makes an observation to Simon. He says that the woman doing all of this has a better understanding of God's love and forgiveness than Simon himself does. Simon doesn't think he needs much forgiveness and therefore has very little love in his heart for Jesus as a result. So you see what Jesus is saying there. He's saying to Simon, Simon, are you really saying you have nothing that you need forgiveness for? There's no impurity in your heart that needs forgiveness at all? If you do not see any impurity in yourself, you will never display much of a need or an appreciation for Jesus, or for that matter, much compassion for those that you see as impure. But if you live aware of the impurity in yourself, of your inability to achieve true purity on your own, Jesus becomes the most compelling person in the universe. Because Jesus makes impure people pure. That's what he does. That's his thing. That's what he's always done, and that's what he can and will do for you, whatever situation you're in, whatever your history is. So I'll try to explain it one other way. In, in the world of precious metals, which is without doubt the nerdiest sentence I've ever uttered. In the world of precious metals, there are two ways for you to obtain an entirely pure metal. The first way is to find one that's already pure. But just to set expectations, if you're thinking about going out and mining for metal later today, just to set expectations, that pretty much never happens. Finding a naturally occurring 100% pure metal is basically unheard of. It's exceedingly rare. Some would argue it's even more rare to find a human in that state. But the second way to obtain a pure metal is to find it in whatever state that it's currently in and then to purify it. You see, this is what we're told repeatedly that Jesus does for anyone who chooses to follow him. He finds them as they are and he purifies them. No matter what they've done, where they've been, what sexual choices they have or haven't made, God grants every single person who comes to him purity. Which means that if you're here this morning and you've made a series of ill-advised sexual choices in your life and you choose to follow Jesus, you are pure. If you've made one really bad sexual choice and you choose to follow Jesus, you're pure. If you've experienced sexual abuse, sexual manipulation in your life when you choose to follow Jesus, you are pure. What Jesus does, what he's always done, is find each of us in whatever state we happen to be in at the time and then he makes us pure. The hope for every single person in this room is not that we can achieve or have achieved purity. The hope for every one of us in this room is that through Jesus, we can be purified. Just to be abundantly clear, the pastor standing in front of you on this stage right now is not pure, not by a long shot. 
but I have been purified. The message of the gospel is not that God gravitates towards the pure, it's that he gravitates towards the impure and purifies them. And the craziest thing happens when Jesus purifies you. You start wanting to be pure. You start desiring purity. You want to take Jesus up on his instructions in Matthew chapter 5 to do anything possible in your power to uproot lust and objectification out of your heart, whatever it takes. You, you want to do anything you can to see other people as fellow image bearers of God and not as objects of your gaze or fantasy or lust. God finds us in our impurity. He makes us pure, and then he gives us a desire to live from that new identity that he's given us. This is what it means to follow Jesus in every arena of our life, including our sexuality. It means being given a new identity through Jesus, and then through that, a desire to live out of that new identity. So I don't ultimately care what your sexual history looks like, and Jesus doesn't either, because you are not your sexual history if you are in Jesus. You are who God says you are, forgiven, redeemed, rescued, and pure. And every week when we approach the tables throughout this room after the teaching, what we are doing is we are resetting our minds and our hearts on that simple reality about the gospel, that through Jesus we have been made into something that we would not have been otherwise. We have a status that we would not have had otherwise without him. We possess an identity that we would not possess if it weren't for him. And all of that was made possible by what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Jesus' body was broken. His blood was spilled so that you and I could be made pure. Regardless of what we have or haven't done, that is who we are when we follow Jesus. And and we literally take these elements on these tables, the bread and the juice, we take these elements into our body. When we do that, we are praying, God, may your body and blood be deeply integrated into the core of who I am. May I live out of that identity you've given me more than any other identity. So if you're a follower of Jesus or if you want to become a follower of Jesus this morning, you're invited to participate in that practice with us as we thank Jesus and respond to Jesus for making all of us pure. Let me pray for us.